In the justice system, crimes are investigated and tried by the government with two distinct sides. The prosecution, which represents the state, and the defense, who represents the accused. During his 60-year career, attorney Mike Fowler has been on the front lines of both sides. These are his stories. I'm Lamar White Jr. of the Bayi Brief, and on this episode of Combat in the Courtroom, Mike Fowler talks about the five times he's been cited for contempt. As told in his book, From the Bronx to the Bayou, Mike goes toe-to-toe the court system and comes out four and one. During the six decades he practiced criminal law, Mike Fowler became known for being intensely, almost insanely prepared. He's often the one person in the room who has read every single paragraph of every single report, petition, exhibit, and deposition. He once tried a case involving 1,400 tape recordings of 31,609 conversations running a total of 1,560 hours. That's 65 days worth. Now, don't get me wrong. He didn't listen to all of those tapes. The judge put a bunch under seal. But there's no doubt he knew more than anyone about what was said and what was not said in those recordings down to refuting not only the veracity of the testimony of the government's star witness, but also debunking the man's concocted backstory of fleeing Nazi Germany by proving he lacked basic factual knowledge of the country he ostensibly fled from. There's another aspect to Mike's courtroom performances, and there's a reason this podcast is titled Combat in the Courtroom. People described his courtroom persona as, quote, combative feisty, belligerent, arrogant, argumentative, and akin to a bantam rooster. As it turns out, the difference between being zealous and overzealous is in the eye of the beholder. To juries, the press, and audiences at home, Mike's theatrics were captivating. But on five occasions in his career, courtroom referees, that is, the person sitting behind the bench in the black robe, cried foul. I've been cited for contempt five times. The one thing that most of these contempt cases have in common is the arrogance, overbearing, at times even stupidity of the judge who cited me for contempt. And I'm happy to discuss it. Mike's first citation occurred during a vote-buying trial in 1979. The government alleged the newly elected congressman from Leesville, Claude Buddy Leach, along with the new Vernon Parish District Attorney, Bill Tilley, and their then-law partner, Ed Cabra, were involved in a complicated scheme to finance and arrange a vote-buying operation led by a man named Willie Fisher. Leach hired Bill Jeffers and Seth Waxman as his defense attorneys, and Tilley, the new DA, hired Mike. The trial itself would be one of many memorable and bizarre scenes. You must be talking about the illustrious Judge Earl Veron, who prior to being a judge, I think, I don't mean to defame the profession of pharmacy, but I think that's what he was before he was a judge. He was a state judge, and then he became a federal judge. I can't tell you the number of bizarre moments there were in this trial. 
unrelated to the contempt, we had a paralegal working for us, Mary Jane Markenthal. And Mary Jane would take notes during the course of a presentation so that at night, if the witness rolled over to the next day, we would know what he said the first day and we could cross-examine based on what he had said. At some point, I'm examining a key government witness. Mary Jane is sitting in the sort of, in the corner in front of the rail. And all of a sudden, Veron stops, calls us to the bench and says, what is that woman doing? And I tell him, she's taking notes of what the witness is saying. And he comes back and says, there's one, only one official note taker in this courtroom, and that's my court reporter. We say, well, that's fine, but how come this FBI agent is sitting there taking notes the same way for the government? There's nothing wrong. Well, okay, she can take notes, but I want you to turn them over to me at the end of the trial. Well, fast forwarding at the end of the trial after the acquittal, the judge then sends us a letter or an order commanding that we turn the notes over to him as he said he'd do. We refused. It went up on appeal. And I think it may be the only case that's in the Fifth Circuit or a court of appeals affirm that a paralegal had a right to take notes and the judge was outside his discretion in telling her not to. That took care of that issue. But that had nothing to do. Notably, no one disputed that votes were indeed bought in the September 1978 election. Witnesses testified at trial that they were paid for their vote by Willie Fisher. The defense presented evidence that Willie Fisher had been paid for a get-out-the-vote program and that the candidates had no knowledge of Fisher's illegal actions. They would also call in character witnesses to testify on their behalf. Veron, on another occasion, which I thought was funny, this was during the Edwin Edwards governorship. The case had nothing to do with Edwin, but Edwin and Buddy were very close. And so Bill Jeffries, his Buddy's attorney, was calling Edwin Edwards to the stand as a character witness for Buddy Leach. And at one point, the governor walks in, the jurors look at him. Edwin is at the height of his popularity at this point. And, you know, it was as if a godlike figure had walked into the courtroom. The jurors are all there salivating. He takes the witness stand. And then the government objects to his being called as a character witness. So we all go to the bench, and they're saying that you can't have character testimony in a vote-buying case. And we're saying, what, what, you know, what are you talking about? Of course you can and this turns into a bit of a, an uproar at the bench. And somebody tells the judge, judge, the jury can overhear what you're saying, or what we're saying. So he turns to the jury and says, jurors, face the wall. So all the jurors swivel their chairs around and face the wall. A friend of mine comes into the courtroom at this point, and he looks, there's this jury, looking at the wall, Edwin Edwards is in the witness chair, and these attorneys and the judge are yelling at one another at the bench. And it was a funny scene. Judge Veron called for a recess to give the defense the rest of the day to find and present case law. Not only did Seth find some cases, but he found a case in a vote-buying case out of Chicago. Where else? 
that involve vote buying and the character witness, and it's admissible. This is before computers to a great extent. And so what Seth would do in order to turn over the material to the judge, he would take the first page, first page was the cover page of the decision from the federal reporter, together with the portion of the decision that was relevant, and put them together. Turned them over that morning or the night before. We come back in the morning, and the judge takes the bench and angrily calls us to the bench. Says, you don't have to answer this question, but I want to know who handed me redacted versions of decisions. Well, we all knew that Seth did. So we quietly suggested Seth get the hell out of the courthouse, which he did. And the silliness of it is, of course, the judge had, he had all the federal reporters in his chambers. What he was arguing about, God only knows. But in any event, he denied our motion and it made no difference because the value of Edward being on the stand, it was clear he was there to praise Leach. So without his ever saying a word, when the judge refused to let him testify, it accomplished our goal anyway. Judge Veron continued to impose his will throughout the trial. At one point, he refused to let me make a record of my objection to some ruling he made. And he refused to let me make a record. And we sort of got on a dialogue where I would say, can I speak? And he would say, no, you can't. And I said, well, let the record reflect that I'm being denied an opportunity to make a record. And he held me in contempt. Well, at the end of the case, Cabra and Leach were acquitted. So now there was going to be a contempt. And since the judge would be a witness, they assigned the case to Gordon West, who was the only judge in the Middle District of Louisiana, which encompassed nothing more than Baton Rouge, and from what I gather, the only reason they ever set up a middle district was for Judge West, who had a reputation of something of being a tyrant, which he wasn't. And when the case got assigned to West, people from Louisiana, lawyers I knew, who knew something about the contempt case, was saying, gee, I'm sorry to hear you got West. Well, I didn't have that feeling because I had tried a criminal bread antitrust case years before, which we won in front of West. And when he had a charge conference the night before that we summed up, it was 11 o'clock at night. We're in the judge's chambers. He's making ruling on instructions to the jury. And then as we leave, he stops me and says, I just want to see you for a minute. I want to compliment you on how professional and how good your course was. So that's the backdrop to my knowing that West is going to sit in judgment. Confident about his prospects before Judge West, Mike decided not to hire an attorney for the hearing. It was maybe 10 days before this contempt hearing would take place. And I'm with my therapist, and I'm telling him I had a dream where I was leading a group through a jungle and a tiger sprang out and instead of attacking me, attacked somebody behind me. And the psychiatrist at the time stopped me and said, Mike, what's going on in your life? I mean, I know a lot that's going on, but 
anything else. And I tell him about this contempt citation that I have a hearing in. So I, I telling him, you know, I didn't think, I sort of laughed at the whole problem. And he said, you know, Mike, this is pretty serious. Why are you, do you have a lawyer? I said, no. You know, and he said, you know, you really ought to get one. Uh, I, I think you're taking it too lightly. And it was like hitting me in the head with a two by four. I suddenly realized I was taking it too lightly. Ran out of the therapist's office or as soon as the hour was over. Got a hold of Camille Gravel, who was my mentor. Called Camille, tell him I have a contempt case. Would he represent me? He said, of course he would. Camille Gravel was more than just Mike's mentor, and he was the kind of lawyer you'd find in the back of a phone book or on a billboard. Camille is often credited as being the architect of the Louisiana State Constitution. At the time of Mike's contempt hearing, Camille had recently moved back home to Alexandria from Baton Rouge, where he had spent seven and a half years as the executive counsel to the governor. Calling in Camille Gravel isn't like bringing a gun to a knife fight. It's like bringing in SEAL Team 6. So we go to Lake Charles 10 days later, and the only witnesses are going to be Earl Varon, the judge, me, and Bill Jeffries. And Varon gets on the stand and, so help me, purges himself up one side and down another. And we have a transcript, and Camille, very much the gentleman on cross-examination, tough but very gentlemanly, He's not the feisty Mike Fowler. He basically eviscerates Judge Veron. And Bill supports my version, and I testify. And then the judge retires to think about the verdict because he's going to render one right then and there. And we all go across the street to get a drink at a bar. And about an hour, an hour and a half later, we're summoned back to the courtroom where the judge recites his decision from the bench exonerating me from any wrongdoing. That was the first citation. That was the end of it. Mike would stay out of judicial crosshairs for 13 years until defending a bankruptcy fraud case in Texas presided over by Judge Paul Brown. From the minute I met Brown, he and I did not see eye to eye. That's an understatement. He didn't like my style. I thought he was an asshole. Other than that, I have nice things to say about him. I don't know how old anybody is who's listening to this, but they used to have a production company, J. Arthur Rank, and the films, they were all black and white films, and would be introduced just like MGM has the lion head. They would be, have a guy who was like a eunuch with a big gong, and he would slam it. Well, that's the sound that would precede the judge coming into the courtroom. It would be unnerving to me, I remember. It would, all of a sudden, you hear a gong, and the judge would appear coming through a doorway. Judge Brown had other quirks to his judicial style. Once, he had called us to the bench, and he had a carpeted couple of steps leading to the bench. And I'm standing there, listening to him, and he looks down and he says, Mr. Farr, please remove your foot from my step. Well, I did it, but I did say, Judge, just to remind you, it's not your step, it's our step. I don't think he took kindly to it. Judge Brown and Mike clashed frequently, and contempt threatened often. 
I think he cited me for or threatened to hold me in contempt. My recollection is the first time was either in voir dire or opening statement. And there must have been 20 or so occasions when he was threatening to hold me in contempt. At some point early in the trial, he had cited me for contempt and fined me $200. And I told him I didn't think I was in any way contemptuous and I wouldn't pay the $200. So he said, well, then I'm converting the $200, a 12-hour jail sentence. And I said I would object to that as well. After the trial ended, Bruce was convicted in that trial, by the way. I have lost cases. That was one of them. In any event, when the case was over, a contempt citation was served upon me. I appealed it, and the Fifth Circuit summarily reversed, saying I had done nothing to hinder the administration of justice except defend my client, and my saying out of the presence of the jury that I wouldn't pay the fine and I wouldn't do the jail time, or I objected to the jail time, in no way was contemptuous, and that ended that. I never saw Judge Brown again, thank God. Five years later, Mike is hired to defend a corruption case. In 97, I'm in front of a judge, maybe the most evil human being that ever wore a black robe. His name was Judge Palazzola, Middle District of Louisiana. I was representing a man named Cheney Phillips, who was the assessor and had then been elected sheriff of St. Helena Parish in Louisiana. Phillips was found to have put a friend and his wife on the payroll in order to get them health insurance for a kickback. Also, he used the assessor's office accounts to go clothes shopping for himself, claiming it was employees' uniforms he was purchasing. Plain and simple corruption. Phillips would be convicted, but not before one juror had to be excused. There was a truly funny incident that happened in the Cheney Phillips case. There was a jury, of course, and the jury was seated and was sequestered, which meant they were going to be locked up for the, the duration of the trial, you know, staying in a motel or a hotel, having meals together and spending leisure time together at the hotel. They were sworn in one day, stayed overnight, and the next morning the judge tells us he has a note from the jurors who have claimed there's one of them who smells so bad they cannot concentrate on what's going on in the courtroom. The judge laughed, the attorneys laughed, and the judge saw sent a note back to the jury basically blowing it off. The next day they send another note saying it is impossible for us to continue. We cannot continue if this individual remains on the jury. So this time the judge takes it a little more seriously and asks us, what do you think, how should we proceed? And I think it was I suggested to the judge, look, why don't you interview the fellow in question, the juror in question, privately in your chambers on the record, but without any of us present. Whatever you decide, we'll abide by it. And he says, fine, sounds reasonable. So we all leave, and the judge has the marshals summon this individual to his chambers. We're outside hanging around just waiting for the judge, and his law clerk comes out and says, the judge has dismissed the juror, 
and it will be with you another 10 minutes. He is spraying his chambers to get rid of the smell. I'd never known something like that to happen before. And never since. There's a subtext to all of this. If you've never lived in a small town, particularly a small town in Louisiana, you may be unaware of how vicious it can be. Campaign season never ends because there are elections for practically everything. Marshal, coroner, tax assessor, clerk of court, and of course, judges are also elected. In this setting, Mike finds himself explaining those dynamics to a judge known as Ayatollah Polazola. After the case was over, the question was whether Cheney would be permitted to remain on bond pending appeal. And it became a very contentious proceeding. There was a judge on the state level who was a political opponent of Cheney named Burl Carter, and he was using this as an opportunity to keep Cheney incarcerated pending appeal or pending sentence as a practical matter. During the course of the hearing, opposing counsel who was Patricia Jones, as I recall, claimed I had misrepresented something to the court, and I denied it. And I said to Judge Palazzolo that it's time that we understood that this court is being manipulated for political purposes. I was not suggesting that he, the judge, was party to the manipulation, but unbeknownst to him, the opposition, including Judge Carter, was using this as a means of manipulating the court for their own benefit. When I said that, the court went berserk, claiming that I had, in effect, impugned his integrity, and he went off and off. And finally, you know, when I was given a chance to speak, the judge cut me off and held me in contempt. I wrote a letter to the judge shortly after, apologizing if he misunderstood what I said, but that I didn't mean any disrespect to him. He ignored it and did not withdraw the contempt citation. Patricia Jones then took the opportunity to respond to my letter by saying to the judge that I deserve to be sanctioned not just for this, but for all the things that occurred during the trial. I didn't know of anything contemptuous that I'd done, but she said it, and I sort of remembered that she had gone out of her way to seek my sanction. In December of 1998, Judge Barefoot Sanders of the Northern District of Texas dismissed the contempt citation, quoting a line from Judge West's decision that, quote, Fowler's conduct did not cross the line between disrespectful remark and one that should be punished as contemptuous for obstructing the administration of justice. The following year, Mike would try a tax evasion case before U.S. District Judge Ralph Tyson. By my count, I had dodged uh, the contempt bullet appropriately three times. The fourth bullet, I didn't dodge. And the reason I didn't dodge it, there was a prosecutor in the case by the name of Mike Davis. And from day one, he and I took a dislike to one another. I thought he was unfair in the way he did certain things in pretrial discovery, making it difficult for us to get access to documents. We go to trial, and at some point, we're at the bench, and 
by this time, I had developed a dislike, as I said, of Mike Davis. And while we're at the bench, Mike sarcastically said to me, in the hearing of the jury as well, talk a little louder because they can't hear you well. And I said to him, in front of the judge, at the bench, out of the hearing of the jury, Mike kiss my ass. The judge insisted that I apologize to Mike for using my inappropriate language. I refused to do so, to which the judge replied, I'm holding you contempt for that remark. Davis and Mike skirmished before the judge daily. Unlike most prosecutors, he was able to press my button. And when he opened his mouth, I was like ready to pounce. But he said something at the bench this time, and I said to the judge, do I have to answer this idiot? And again, he asked me to apologize. I refused. He held me in contempt. We go to summation, and out of the blue, in his opening statement, launches a personal attack on me. I mean, when I say a personal attack, having nothing to do with anything with respect to the facts in the case, but just a personal attack. Richard and I go to the bench, anticipating the judge to, at very least, politely tell him, you're out of bounds, Mr. Davis, stop that and go on. Instead, he denied our objections. Richard and I, aghast, sort of walk away from the bench. And as we did so, I said to Richard, just, oh, shit. Not aimed at the judge, but I said it. I were then called back to the bench, and this time the judge again, there's nobody for me to apologize to, but he thought I was referring to him. I tried to explain to him that I was not directing a remark to him. I was upset at the ruling, which I think he knew, that he, the judge, knew, was an inappropriate ruling in light of what Davis had done. And that's the context in which he held me in contempt the third time. This time, the contempt hearing would not go Mike Fowers' way. As I recall, Kiss My Ass cost me $500. Calling Mike Davis an idiot cost me $1,500. And saying what I did as I left the bench, not to want to repeat it again, cost me $3,000, making for a total of $5,000. I also was sentenced to a certain number of hours to do continuing legal education in the field of ethics or professionalism. I satisfied my obligation to do the continuing education by teaching professionalism that next year in the continuing legal education program. I think I most likely told them how about the contempt citations, just like I'm telling you right now. There was one more time Mike Fowler was cited for contempt. It was in 2007, and he wasn't even on the case. I had been married to a woman. We were divorced, and she had been involved in a strange custody battle over her two children. And the people who were attacking her right to custody was her sister, her sister's husband, and their brother, Joe Bartels. Well, there was a hearing. I had arranged for my ex-wife to be represented by a fine family law attorney by the name of Bennett Wolf. 
Bennett was late getting from the South Shore to the North Shore for this hearing. So I was sort of sitting in, well, before you go and have the hearing before the judge, these custody battles are preceded by a visit to a social worker who's down the hall. Well, Bartels is out there in the hall waiting along with me. I had some documents I wanted to introduce during the proceeding, and I needed to give them to the opposing side. Bartels was on his cell phone, so I was waiting for him to get off. And when he did, I handed him these documents. And I went back talking to another attorney. All of a sudden, Bartels come barging over and looks me in the eye and says, son of a bitch, you Jew motherfucker. Well, as soon as he said that, I said to him, what did you say? And at the same time, I grabbed him by the knot in his tie and twisted slightly, well, with some force. Bartell says, oh, you broke my neck and falls on the floor. The next thing I know, sheriff's deputies are coming to arrest me, put me in a cell, paramedics have come, put Bartels in a neck brace, put him on a gurney. He's handcuffed to the gurney, and they take him off to the hospital. Call up a friend of mine who's Buddy Spell, who's a lawyer over there. He got the judge to let me out of the lockup. We had a hearing. The judge held both of us in contempt, both Bartels and I. Unlike the other times, this hadn't happened in front of a judge, so this was inherent contempt. There's different rules. So we were entitled to notice and a hearing. Well, the judge had given us neither a notice nor a hearing, took it up on appeal. The contempt citations were dismissed, and that was the end of the story. Joe Bartels never suffered any injury to his neck, never sued, never did anything, and that was the end of that. But that was the fifth time I was cited for contempt, and in that one, I was totally justified in doing what I did. Trouble is, I didn't break his neck, although he deserved to have his neck broken. There's more details in Mike's book, From the Bronx to the Bayou, available online at bronxtothebayou.com and Amazon in hardcover, paperback, and ebook. If you're in New Orleans, it's available at Octavia Books and Blue Cypress Bookstore. I'm Lamar Y. Jr. of the Bayou Brief. On behalf of myself and my producer, Ben Collinsworth, thanks for listening.